In the Old Testament, Yahweh was worshipped as king of the earth. In the New Testament, this title is appropriated to Jesus. But at the second coming, there's a profound new reality that awaits believers. The triune God will rule through the body of Jesus forever. Welcome to the show, everybody. This is the Dance of Life podcast, and I'm Tudor Alexander. Thanks so much for joining me today. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe on the website to keep up to date with whatever I push out, and just in case that the content is not available to you, or it's hidden, or you don't like watching with ads, and certainly I don't, so you can watch all my stuff ad-free. So check it out, danceoflife.com. Now today we are continuing this series on the Trinity. We're almost done. We're really getting to some very interesting topics. I think they're very interesting. They're very relevant, I believe, also because a lot of people are affected by these beliefs one way or another, whether they realize it or not. Last week, we talked about monarchical Trinitarianism, which is probably something you've never even heard of before. But believe it or not, a lot of people are either taught monarchical Trinitarianism, believe it, or are influenced by it one way or another. And we looked at why that's just not right. It's not correct. It's not a correct view of the nature of God. So today, we kind of continue that conversation. The episode is related to last week's episode, so if you haven't watched last week's, go check it out. It's a longer episode, but certainly you'll learn quite a bit of history, a lot of church history, a lot of the evolution of of the beliefs that people believe today, which is very important. We have to understand where our beliefs come from. Specifically, do they come from the Bible or do they come from tradition? So last week, we talked about this quite a bit. And today we're going to continue that conversation, but we're going to look at the solution, at least a good enough solution that we can wrap our minds around, which is this idea of triune monarchy, which is a very, very interesting topic. It's about the nature of God as king, but really we know that God is triune. And again, if this is news to you, if you're joining this series at the end and you don't agree with that, or you have, you know, other views then go back and watch some of the previous episodes because we we really established quite a lot of things. You know, like, what did Jesus say about himself as God? What did the apostles believe about Jesus as God? We looked at the Old Testament. We looked at things like the Son of Man as a proof of deity. We looked at the Son of God as a proof of deity. All these things are so important, and they were context for really what we're discussing Right now, we in the last couple of weeks, we've talked about heresies, we've talked about monarchical Trinitarianism, all of the, all the ways that people basically get it wrong, basically get the Trinity wrong. And of course, the Trinity is a mystery. This is another thing that I hope to impress upon you with this series, is that it's a mystery, just like the Incarnation is a mystery. And if you have trouble holding mysteries in your mind because of the cognitive dissonance, then you will be tempted or you will go into error. Every single heresy, every single every single heresy, basically, every time somebody's come up with an incorrect belief about the nature of God, look at the incarnation. So many heresies there because people could not stomach the mystery of fully God and fully man. It's no different with the Trinity. One being existing in three persons is a mystery to us because we don't exist that way. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't exist that way. But some people also believe in the monarchy of the Father, which is shared by some Protestants. A lot of Catholics also espouse this idea, which is the idea that the the Father has kind of a special 
authority or special economy within the Trinity. And, and it just, again, these things are on gradients. So subordinationism is a heresy. Unitarianism is a heresy. Unitarianism is obvious, very obvious and easy to refute. But then after Unitarianism, on the sliding scale of heresies, you have um, subordinationism. Subordinationism doesn't deny the divinity of Christ. Now, some do. Again, there's within, even within subordinationism, there are ranks, you know, that there's a spectrum. But let's say subordinationism overall doesn't deny the divinity of Jesus. It just says Jesus is less than the Father in some way. There's a lot of different takes on that. But you see, that one's a little harder to disprove. And then you have monarchical Trinitarianism, which is one step away from that, but still wrong in the sense that it says that the Father alone has self-existence and the Son and the Spirit are dependent on the Father and they're spiraling outward from the Father in a very philosophical, metaphysical kind of sense. That one's a lot harder to disprove, and that's why last week's episode needed so much context so that you understand why it's wrong. Now, of course, if you, just on face value, anybody who says that the Father alone has self-existence, that immediately makes a distinction between God uh, yeah, between God, basically between God the Son and God the Father, where the Bible doesn't make that distinction. But then you also have this idea of monarchy of the Father, where the Father is kind of the only one that's king, which we're going to look at today. So in this episode, we're at, we have a lot to consider as well. It's probably going to be a longer episode as well. Use the timestamps, take notes if you have to, watch it in sections, but I promise you'll learn something. I think this stuff is very interesting. I think you'll learn quite a bit. If you enjoy history, if you enjoy really studying the nature of God, studying philosophy, theology, it'll be an educating episode for you. And it'll be ultimately a way for you to marvel at the nature of God. That's really what this is about. Now, a lot of people, almost 2 billion people believe this monarchical understanding of the Trinity in some form or fashion, whether they're subordinationists, full-on subordinationists, or they're monarchical Trinitarians, or maybe they're Protestant, but they believe in monarchy of the Father, or Catholic, or whatever. I would say a good estimate is about 2 billion people that believe this view of monarchy. And it's wrong. And, and I intend to show it to you, hopefully, in this episode, that it's wrong. But our goal is to avoid subordinationism in all of its forms, from the most obvious, like Unitarianism, to the least obvious, like monarchical Trinitarianism or monarchy of the father. All of these things have subordinationist tendencies. Subordinationism has been a tradition since the early church fathers that came into the church in the third and fourth century. So again, if you saw last week's episode, you understand where this is coming from. It's a very old understanding. It's tradition. But at the, you know, we want to, again, we want to marvel at God's nature. We want to marvel at his plan of salvation we want to also get excited to see the Lord face to face. When you really get today's topic about triune monarchy, that the triune God himself will be in the body of Jesus and ruling from the body of Jesus in eternity when Jesus returns, and we will be able to gaze upon the triune God in physical form. That to me is such a profound thought. That is to me the completion of my existence personally. I know that when I will see Jesus eye to eye, the triune God, then my life will be complete. That's it. <laughs> you know, of course, we're going to live forever, 
But the whole point of our existence is to see and worship and marvel at God. And when you will see the triune God in, in the body of Jesus, in the glorified body, that's the completion of our purpose, of our existence, to be with God. So this is what today's is about. It's not about being dogmatic about these things. I'm going to present you with a lot of information. But ultimately, remember that this is a mystery. These things are mysteries. We're dealing with mysteries, and particularly two mysteries, the mystery of the Incarnation and the mystery of the Trinity, which are both interwoven to form, I guess, an even greater mystery, which is really this whole nature of God and how he will be with us in the future that is soon to come, soon to come. Now, a very important note before we proceed, there's on your sheet for this series, I have a, if you've downloaded the sheet, if you go to my website and check out the Bible study series for this, you'll see that there is a colored, like a poster type of thing, basically with the Trinity, showing you the different relationships of the Trinity with sort of symbols for each person. Now, it's very easy to look at that and draw a monarchical understanding from that graphic. So I want to very much clarify that that's not the case. There is a crown for the Father, there is a cross for the Son, and there is a dove for the Holy Spirit. All of these, you will understand them in a more complete and deeper understanding by the end of this episode. Hopefully, you'll be able to see that it's not monarchy of the Father, but rather these are different functions within the Godhead, within God himself. And really, when Jesus returns, he'll be the fulfillment of all three of these, in, in a sense. So we'll get back to these at the end. So stay with me. You're going to see some really cool things. Hopefully, you'll be as interested in them as I am. I think they're fascinating. And like I said, with this whole uh, symbology on that sheet, you'll see how this relates to Christ in a very profound way. But I'm going to talk about that towards the end. So today we want to prove that Yahweh as a being is the monarch. Now again, remember Yahweh is tripersonal, he's multipersonal, but Yahweh as the being is the monarch. We looked at previous episodes where Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. We're going to look a little bit at that today again. We also looked at the New Testament and the future of Christ, and we're going to re repeat that today and go much more in-depth in terms of what is happening when Jesus returns. Now, I'm not talking about end-time stuff. You can look at my end-time series for that. A lot of in-depth things about the trumpets, the seals, all these different things, the seven churches, the return of Christ, the mark of the beast. I'm not talking about any of that stuff today. I'm talking about, like, ont not ontologically, but what is happening with the nature of God, with the nature of Christ, when he returns because there's a very specific verse that we're looking at, 15, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28, which is a difficult verse. It is, at least on face value, if you don't have context, it seems to suggest that Jesus becomes subordinate to the Father, which all the subordinationists love, but it's not true. Something more profound is happening, and we're going to look at that today. So again, this will probably be a longer episode. Use the timestamps below. And if you have any questions, feel free to email me. I'm always available. Put your comments in the comment section, and I'll do my best to get back to you. But I hope today is going to be fascinating. And again, my goal with all of this stuff is for you to avoid errors in your thinking. It's it's not a—there a, is no—let me put it this way. There's no model 
that we can ever come up with that's going to get 100% at the nature of God. So this is a big caveat for today. And really for anybody talking about the Trinity or the Incarnation, there's no model that you can put God into a box in. However, we can use what Scripture has given us and construct a rough idea of the nature of God and marvel at that. Because when we will join him in eternity, we're going to have the real thing. God is going to be right there in your face in full glory for you to marvel at for the rest of eternity. So who cares about having a perfect model? Now, the, the, the important thing is to have a biblically, biblically accurate model. There's a lot of models. Right? We looked at the heresies, we looked at monarchical Trinitarianism. There's, those are models, but they're wrong. They're wrong for very obvious reasons. So today, don't think this is the absolute truth. Don't take it dogmatically. Nevertheless, my goal is to present you with something that works, something that is true biblically, something that does honor and justice to the texts, to a relatively nebulous area, which is, again, the nature of God. And the nature of these two mysteries, the mystery of the incarnation and the mystery of the Trinity, and how they work together, which in itself is a mystery. It really is. It's, it's a, like, next-level mystery. Because the other two mysteries, we can't really even comprehend fully. So how they work together is just another level of mystery. So let's marvel together. Let's marvel together at this, and let's see what the Bible says. Now, the first thing is, Yahweh as a being is the monarch. Monarch, mono, means one. Ark means ruler or control, archon, king, emperor. So monarch is one ruler. Yahweh has always been the monarch. He's one being. He's sovereign. Yet he exists in three persons. So God is king. This is undeniable. We're going to look at a lot of proof texts for this. But we know that Yahweh is multipersonal. The Bible doesn't make a distinction between the different persons of Yahweh as one of those persons being king versus another one. Because again, there's no separation between God. Jesus is God incarnate, and he's the same level of God that God the Father is. This is the problem that most of the church struggled with in the early church. We looked at this with subordinationism. But God, is, God has always been king, and this idea is also the future reality that all things are headed towards. God ruling on earth through the body of Jesus, which is a profound reality. It's not just the Son. We're talking God as Yahweh, the triune God, ruling through his chosen vessel, which is Jesus of Nazareth, the, the glorified body of Christ, ruling on earth. This is the future of Revelation. And it's pretty exciting. It's pretty crazy to, to think of that. But nonetheless, this is what it's going to. And, of course, we relate to Jesus. He's, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. These are all in John, like, for example, John 14, 7, 3, 11. If you had known me, you would have known my father also from now on. You do know him and have seen him. So if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the father. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have, you, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, else believe on account of the works themselves. This is just one of a few verses. Of course, I also quoted um, John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. There is, of course, distinction within God that is shown throughout the scriptures, especially, obviously, the New Testament. But there's also great unity. And this is the part, again, that brings this to a mystery. But Jesus and the Father being one, how this works is, is a fascinating mystery. Can we understand it fully? I don't think so. I don't think we need to understand it fully. I think we need to understand it to the point where we can marvel at the mystery of the incarnation, at the mystery of God's nature. Remember that all heresies reduce the mystery of the nature of God. When we're talking about heresies in terms of God's nature. All of those heresies that we talked about two weeks ago, monarchical Trinitarianism, any chance of like any way that we can put God in in an understandable sequence in box to reduce the mystery because mysteries cause cognitive dissonance and we don't like cognitive dissonance where two things seem to be contradictory to each other. And so we have to explain it because it's uncomfortable. But God calls you to marvel. He doesn't call you to explain him. He calls you to marvel. So I want to look at this image. This is actually the cover image to this episode. And it's going to be a little study guide for us today, but this is this is what we're dealing with. In, in the incarnation where Jesus of Nazareth was the incarnate Son of God, you have the triune God, which is Yahweh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, entered reality through Jesus of Nazareth in the incarnation. Jesus of Nazareth was the incarnate Son. Now, of course, again, this is a mystery because there's no separation between the Son and and the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The, I and the Father are one. The Father is in me, and I'm in the Father. So there's no, again, this is a model, right? It's, but the model is not going to tell you 100% reality. It's a model for us to think about it. The Son entered reality in Jesus of Nazareth. The Son was equally God as Father is equally God. This is the mystery of incarnation. Now, in the verse that we're going to be looking at later today, which is the consummation, where basically all things are consummated, the end of all things, and the beginning of eternity, 1 Corinthians 15, 28, which we'll look at, the triune God will be ruling through the body of Jesus, through the glorified body of Christ on earth. When you look at Jesus, you will see Yahweh in person, in personified form, which is an astounding mystery to consider. It's profound. I, I, Whenever I think about it, it just blows me away, and it really gets me excited for eternity. So I hope it does for you too as well. But this is what we're dealing with, and we're going to come back to this image quite a bit. Feel free to download it off um, the episode. I'll, I can put a link for it too as well in the um, in the resources for this study. So if you want all the resources and the citations for every episode in this series, just go to my website, danceoflife.com. You're going to be able to click on the Bible studies there, go to Trinity, and you'll see all the resources there. But Yahweh was always king in the Old Testament. So we want to look at a few key verses. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. This is Yahweh speaking. Job 41, 11. 
Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. All of the earth is Yahweh's. Yahweh is king of the earth. Now in 1 Samuel 8 verse 7, Yahweh says to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me as king over them. Meaning, he is king, but they have rejected Yahweh as king. If you remember the story here where Saul was chosen to be the the fleshly king that the people wanted because they wanted to be just like everybody else. They couldn't stand the mystery of an invisible king. But they rejected Yahweh as king. Yahweh was king already. He's always been king. But they rejected him as king, and so they wanted a fleshly representative. And of course, God used it for the good as a picture of Christ. But nonetheless, the context is that they rejected an invisible king. Very interesting. Now in the Psalms, again, these are just a few. There's so much of this in the Old Testament. You can find it everywhere. But Psalm 47, verse 7, For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. In Psalm 74, uh, 12, it says, Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. So Yahweh is king. Pretty pretty consistent theme throughout the Old Testament that Yahweh is king. He's always been king. All the earth is his. He was seen as the king. Now, remember the important thing that the Jews for many centuries were binitarians, meaning they, they saw two powers in heaven. For good reason, because the angel of Yahweh, which appeared to Moses in the burning bush, which Abraham attributed to being the God that appeared to him, that he made a covenant with, angel of Yahweh claims God's actions, receives worship. So you have this plurality within God, at very from the very beginning, with the angel of the, of the Lord, angel of Yahweh. And yet God, Yahweh, as a being, as one being, is seen as king. Very, very important. And so you have already in the Old Testament these mysteries coming to the surface where, again, you have Yahweh as king. There's only one Yahweh. But Yahweh is multipersonal. He exists in more than one person, as we see from the angel of Yahweh and the invisible Yahweh that you don't see, that is talked about separately. And Yahweh refers to himself in the third person. So you're dealing with these realities that are, again, they're, they're not entirely clear in the Old Testament. That's the whole point. The point is to give you a desire for revelation, which is what the New Testament provides. But now we want to move to the New Testament and see what it has to say about Jesus. Now, I'm going to preface this. I'm, I'm not going to spend too much time on this because there's a whole episode of my end time series that goes into great depth about this with Jesus being king. Is Jesus king now or in the future? I believe it's episode number three. Go watch that episode and learn the truth because a lot of people believe that Jesus will be king in the future with a golden age millennial reign of a thousand years where he has to put his enemies under his feet. Which, you know, newsflash, that's setting you up for the Antichrist instead. If there will be a false Christ, people who believe that Jesus needs to reign in the future for a thousand years will be the first to be deceived by him. So be very wise, be very careful what you believe, and realize that Jesus is actually king right now. He's been king since he ascended, and he fulfilled the vision in Daniel uh, 7 of of the Son of Man. So very, very important 
to understand these things, but go check out that episode. Nevertheless, let's look at what the Bible says. Ephesians 1, verse 20 through 23. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is a position of authority. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We're going to come back to this idea of being all in all, which is, again, very interesting. It's a very interesting situation that we're looking at in eternity. But Jesus is placed above all rule and authority, not only in this age, meaning the millennial reign, which is happening right now, where he's ruling from heaven, but in the age to come, meaning the Christ... The God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, will be ruling on earth, and God will be ruling through him forever. He's the chosen vessel for God to do that. Very fascinating. Hebrews 1 verse 8, but, the son, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So now the Son is the one who is king and ruling. Of course, the author here appropriates Psalm 110 to the Son. And this is another proof text that we looked at where the Son is seen as God, equally God. Which again, if you don't have a Trinitarian view of the scriptures, these things are just conundrums. They're real, they're a real problem for you know people to reconcile. First Timothy. Uh, 1 verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, people say the only God here is just the Father. This is, again, taking things out of context. You have to read in context. The Old Testament said that Yahweh was the king. Of course, there's only one God. There's only one Yahweh. Yahweh was the king in the Old Testament. But Yahweh is multipersonal, so how do you deal with that? Yahweh as a being is king, but he exists multipersonally. So the only God doesn't mean just God the Father. God the Father is not specified here. God as a triune being is specified. And we can see, for example, Romans 9, which Paul also wrote. Romans 9 verse 5 says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all. Bless forever. Amen. Now, is there more than one God? The answer is no. There is no more than one God. There's only one God. Who is that God? Well, Christ, he's the God over all. There is the Father, there is the Son, there's the Holy Spirit. But Christ is God. Meaning, when, when Jesus of Nazareth was walking the earth, remember our model. You had the Trinity entering reality through the Son in the body of Jesus. Again, how that works is a mystery. It's a profound mystery. But nonetheless, Jesus is equally God as God the Father is. You must honor the Son as you honor the Father, remember? Very important. We're going to look at some of this stuff today. But God overall is also applicable to the future idea that Christ will be ruling on earth. We're going to be living on earth and ruling with Christ. Christ is going to be ruling, obviously. He's the king. But we're going to conquer and rule with Christ, inherit the earth forever. And the triune God will be ruling through Christ. Christ will be the vessel. He is the vessel that you will look at and you will see the triune God. This is what 
all of this is boiling down to, which is very fascinating. Now, the book of Revelation is very much filled with these themes, and, and really because, again, it's the last book of the Bible, has a lot to say about this topic. For example, Revelation 1, verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Now, if Jesus is not king right now, I talk about this in that end times episode, he cannot be the ruler of the kings of the earth. Do you see how this works? Now, of course, there's other passages we'll look at, but Jesus is the king of kings. He is the king that God was the king. God has always been the king. In the New Testament, that is revealed as Jesus. Jesus is the king. And he's king right now, which is a very important point. Revelation 3, verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. There is a mutual sense of ruling. You're starting to see it? There is a mutual sense of ruling. The father alone is not the monarch. Yahweh is the being that is the king. He's one being. He exists multi-personally. Now, Jesus says here in Revelation 3 that he conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He has a throne, and he's sitting with the Father on his throne. Well, how does that work? Well, the spirit world, two things cannot, two things can coexist in the same space at the same time, which doesn't apply to the physical world. And this is why people struggle with this stuff. How can that be? It doesn't apply to God, the rules that apply to us. In our physical world, somebody's sitting on the throne. Well, okay, they're taking the throne. You can't have two people on the throne. It doesn't work. But in the spirit world, it's different. There is a co-ruling of sorts with the persons, which again, all this stuff is a mystery. It's very interesting. Revelation 5, verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Now, again, if you don't have a Trinitarian view of the gospel, how can the lamb, if he's not God, equally God, receive the same blessing and honor and glory as the him who sits on the throne, which in this case is distinguished as the father. But again, don't think, don't take things out of context. This doesn't teach you that the father exclusively is the one sitting on the throne. You just saw in the last verse in Revelation 3, and you'll see in other ones as we continue, that Jesus is also sitting on the throne. So these are, these are one this is one way, by the way, really quick, how people make errors in their reading of Scripture. Scripture will give you pictures from different angles. Unless you have the patience to put those pictures together into a collage and understand the bigger picture, you're going to go with error. You're going to run into error. Revelation 3, verse 21, Jesus says that he has a throne. He's on his throne. He's ruling. Of course, the Father is on his throne, too. Of course, God is king, but God is existing in plurality. Very important. Revelation 6, verses 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. This is, uh, I believe, the sixth seal. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath, their plural wrath has come. And who can stand? 
Do you see how this is referring to God? But again, it's referring to God as plural. Their wrath has come. It doesn't say of his wrath. It says their wrath. They are treated as equals, distinguished, but united as well within the same passage. Very important. Now, in Revelation 6, verse 10, which is a little bit earlier, we, we, we see this idea of the sovereign Lord. They cried out with, law, with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, without any context, this is easy to misinterpret as well. Maybe it's just the Father that they're talking to. But they're talking to God. God is multipersonal. Because in the New Testament, John 5, verse 22, Jesus says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. This is, this is probably one of the most important verses to take to heart. John 5, verse 23. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If you do not honor the Son <clears throat> equally to how you would honor the Father, then this is not to the glory of the Father. And you're not going along with what the plan of salvation reveals to you, that the Son is to be honored as you honor the Father, meaning you see Jesus and you see God, equally so. Not somebody who is spirating or being generated from God the Father, not somebody who's subordinate to God the Father, not somebody who's not king, but God the Father is king. None of these views honor the Son as they honor the Father. This is so important, and I truly hope more people understand it, because it reveals the mystery of God. It really does, the mystery of the nature of God. But look in the Old Testament, Genesis 18.25, this is Abraham speaking to Yahweh. Far be it from you to do such a thing, this is about the um, Sodom judgment right before to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare is the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? Who is he talking to? He's talking to Yahweh. Now, a very important point with this conversation between Abraham and Yahweh in the Old Testament, if you recall, Abraham is talking to the personified Yahweh, meaning the one that's walking around on earth, the angel of Yahweh. He's talking to the personified, manifested form of Yahweh, which is different, or I should say distinct. Don't read into my words too much. Different and distinct it mean the same thing. Distinction within God. The angel of Yahweh is distinct from the Father. But now, of course, in the Old Testament, we don't have the revelation of the Father and the Son. But we do have revelation between the Yahweh that you can't see and the Yahweh that's walking around and doing stuff and talking to people and wrestling with Jacob and calling down judgment or striking down 185,000 Assyrians with his sword. So there is a plurality within the Old Testament. And Abraham is talking to Yahweh, the person, meaning the personified Yahweh, which is very interesting because he says that he's the judge of the earth. And in the New Testament, Jesus tells you that the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. And in Revelation 6.10 now, when we go back to Revelation 6.10, the people under the altar are crying, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before will, will you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Well, there's only one sovereign Lord, and there's only one judge of the earth. 
And the New Testament tells you that that judge and sovereign is Jesus. Interesting, isn't it? Revelation 7, verse 17. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Notice, again, when you read these things, you're reading a mystery, folks. If, if you're getting super literal about it and trying to be dogmatic, you're missing the point. The lamb in the midst of the throne. This is a position of authority and a kingship. And then it says, God will wipe away their tear from their eye. Does this mean that God the Father is wiping away the tears? Or is it now zooming out and telling you Yahweh, God, as a being, as a tri-personal being, will wipe away your tears? Why? Because he's going to be ruling on earth through the body of Jesus. That's why. But this, again, God is not exclu exclusively used for God the Father, unless it's distinguished that, that way. Or, for example, in the previous verses, where there's a distinct distinction between the one on the throne and the lamb. doesn't mean the lamb isn't on the throne. It just means in that picture that you're shown, you're seeing a distinction. That's all. You have to reconcile that with all the verses about unity. And this is the mystery. This is what's so beautiful and profound about it that it is a mystery that these things are coexisting. Of course, later in Revelations, it's pretty clear, Revelation 19, verse 16, on his robe, this is Jesus now, and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is, by the way, a title that was used for Yahweh in the Old Testament. Revelation 21, verses 5 through 6, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega and the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water without of life without payment. Now, here's an important, there's a lot of important points actually in this couple of verses. First off, he who is seated on the throne. Now, who is speaking in this particular interchange? It's Jesus. Jesus is seated on the throne. Jesus is the king that's speaking. Behold, I am making all things new. I, singular. Now, if he's making all things new, that means he made them previously. So you have the creator of the earth who has just been acknowledged. You also have the king, who is Jesus, because he's sitting on the throne. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. This is only what Yahweh would say in the Old Testament. Only Yahweh said this. Now Jesus says it. He's on the throne. He's making all things new again. He's recreating the world, re redeeming it, basically. And you have this fulfillment, this consummation of this image. So you have these, these various layers. Now look at, at Revelation 22, one chapter over, verses 3 through 5. No longer will there be any anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb, mutual, will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more, and they will need no light or the lamp of the or lamp light of the lamp or the sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Very again, very interesting realities being painted. Things that if you just read them plainly and you had no understanding of the plurality of God, you're like, wait a minute, is this a grammatical mistake? What's going on here? Now, we know the Bible doesn't make mistakes, so we have to take it for what it says. 
No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb. So in this case, now there's a distinction between the Father and the Son. Very clearly so. Whereas before you saw there's no distinction. Revelation 21, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the King. He's the Creator. He's the one on the throne. Now you're seeing a distinction. The, the throne of God and of the Lamb. The Father and the Son, basically. But then in the verse right after the distinction is made, this is the beauty. Right after this distinction is made, it tells you what? They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So you have a distinction between God the Father and the Son. And then literally the next verse, it says they will see his face. Well, who is the his? Who is the his in this particular case? It's Yahweh. It's Yahweh God. Because right the next verse after, it says they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. Well, obviously, if the Lord God is your light, then he is the his whose face you're going to be seeing. But wait a minute. How does that work if the throne of the Father and the Son will be in the midst of everybody? Well, it works because of triune monarchy. Yahweh as a being is king. He's one being. He's always been king and he always will be king. However, the manifestation of that reality in the physical world is a sequential type of thing where the Messiah had to be born, the Son became incarnate in the Messiah, the Son suffered and died and he resurrected, and he ascended to take the throne and fulfill the vision that Daniel 7 had of the Son of Man being given dominion. He's ruling right now through the Millennial Kingdom, and he's going to return to give the kingdom back to the Father and to basically create all things new, like you just read in Revelation 21. He's going to sit on the throne on earth and rule forever, and the triune God will rule through him in paradise. This is the future. This is the sequence of events. And at each point of time, there's a mystery. If you really sit down and consider it, each one of these events is a mystery. The incarnation, you know, the ascension, the, the, the millennial kingdom, that's fascinating to think about. The, the return of Christ, and of course, the final situation, which is this consummation, where God will be in their midst, the Lord God. Well, how many Lord Gods are there? There's just one. And it's, it's singular. They will see his face. Well, there's only one physical manifestation of God, and that's Jesus Christ. So you have Jesus is the Lord God. Very clearly so. And we looked at this in previous episodes. But all of these together, put together, put it together now, what do they tell you? The Bible, first off, never says that the Father alone is king. It doesn't make that distinction. It does make distinctions between the Father and the Son, like in Revelation, where it seems like the Father has the throne and the Son doesn't have the throne, if you read it out of context. But obviously, if you do read it in context, you see that that's not the case. It's just a distinction for the sake of making a particular picture about something. But it never makes the distinction that the Father alone is the king. It's always God that's the king. And remember, God is not used exclusively for the Father. It's some, it goes in and out. Just like when we look at the Old Testament, Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh, often will speak of himself in the first and the third person within the same commentary. So you have the, this plural reality that is being manifested to you, which is just so, so profound. 
But Yahweh is the king or God is the king. It's always relating to God as one being, not one person when we talk about kingship, which is very important from a Trinitarian perspective. Now, subordinationists will read the word God as exclusively for the Father, but this is obviously not true. We looked at several examples just now. And we looked at it in the, in the subordinationist episode. We looked at it in the monarchical Trinitarian episode. It's just not true. God is not exclusively used for just the Father. It's really not. The Old Testament says that Yahweh is king. The New Testament says that Jesus is king. The New Testament also confirms that Jesus is Yahweh. We looked at this in a previous episode a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, actually. We also know Jesus has two natures, human and divine. He's human, fully human, and fully Yahweh, fully God. How do all of this make sense? Well, it makes sense through triune monarchy in the sense that God as one being has always been king. And at the end of time, he, that one being will rule through the body of Christ. Fully human, fully God in his glorified physical form. Pretty, pretty profound. Now, I want to make a couple distinctions about the millennial kingdom and the incarnation. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but it's worth to repeat. The millennial kingdom, again, if if this is news to you, if, if you aren't familiar with what this means, go check out my end time series. The millennial kingdom comes from Revelation 20. It's this idea in end times views that Jesus has to reign for a literal 1,000 years in the future. Now, this is a false teaching, and for many reasons, the implications are very bad. If you believe this, it doesn't, I'm not calling you a heretic, but you have to examine why you believe what you believe and what are the implications. The millennial reign is happening right now. And that's because Jesus, when he ascended, he fulfilled the vision that Daniel had in Daniel 7 of the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days and being presented with all dominion and glory and honor. So that, that was after Christ fulfilled his mission on earth and ascended to heaven. He's coming before the Ancient of Days of the Father and receiving that authority and in the fulfillment of that authority. And so then he's ruling from heaven for this period of time between the ascension and the return. This is the millennial kingdom, which is also the church age, the tribulation. I go into detail on all these different things, but this is the millennium right now while his enemies are being put under his feet. Psalm 110 or Psalm 2. Gosh, I always get those two mixed up. Anyway, it's one of those two. But he's ruling while his enemies are being put under his feet. Now that makes sense. Look around you. Things are really crazy. And the Antichrist, the Antichrist power has to come to the earth. The mark of the beast has to come to the earth. His enemies will be put under his feet. But that's why Christ is ruling right now. Now, another reason why he's ruling right now, he has to rule, is because the Messiah has to be king and priest at the same time. This is another inextricable part of Jesus's ministry. If Jesus is not king right now, then he's also not high priest and we do not have intercession. We do not have a gospel. Of course, he is king right now, but this is what happens when you don't question your beliefs. So Jesus has to be king right now because he's high priest. The ascension pretty much initiated that kingship sitting at the right hand of God. And we, again, we know that Jesus has two natures, one that's physical, human, and one that is divine, Yahweh. He's fully God. 
just like the Father is fully God. This is a mystery. Now put this together. The purpose of the incarnation was to save mankind. Jesus was a propitiation for sins. He was a way to model behavior for us, to be conformed to the image of Christ. He basically redeemed the glory of God because God had passed over former sins and made his glory look cheap by forgiving people. So Jesus fixed all of that. Now, the millennial kingdom is a temporary situation. When it says in Psalm 2 that he has to rule his enemies under put under his feet, there's going to be a point in time when there's no more enemies, right? Evil is going to be destroyed. So this is a temporary situation. Meaning while Jesus is in heaven ruling and the millennial kingdom is, is happening, it's ongoing until his return, this is a temporary slice of time. It's not an eternal state. The eternal state comes when Jesus returns to the earth and recreates creation, gives us new bodies, destroys evil, and everything is paradise at that point. That's the final picture. But until then, we have this temporary phase of time, which is the millennial kingdom, which is very important. It's the church age. It's the tribulation. It's the time where the powers of darkness are fading. Even though it seems like they're coming to light, they are fading. That's what all of the Bible tells you from Daniel 2, the statue vision, all the way to Revelation 17, where the mystery Babylon gets judged. The powers of evil are fading. They will come to power, but nonetheless, they're running out of time, which is very important to remember. Also, it's in a time for the elect that God has purposed to save to come to salvation. So this church age has a lot of distinct purposes and why Christ is ruling from heaven. And again, I go into all that in great depth in my end time series. Several episodes dedicated to the millennial kingdom. But again, common to, contrary, contrary to common belief, the millennial kingdom ends when Jesus returns. It doesn't begin when he returns. This is such an important point to understand. Because this is what brings us now to this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28, where a lot of people believe that there is something to do with subjection going on. So now let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28, and just read it and see what it has to say. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things under subjection under him that God may be all in all. There's that phrase again that we saw from Ephesians, that God may be all in all. So when all things are subjected to Christ, it says, then the Son will himself be subjected to him who put things under subjection to him, meaning God. And God will be all in all. Now, a lot of people take this verse out of context and say, you see, this teaches subordination. Christ is subordinate to the Father. Well, there's many, many problems with that. We're going to look at that today because a lot of people also use it to support monarchical Trinitarianism or monarchy of the Father. All of these subordinationist leaning views, which are very wrong. Remember, you have to honor the Son as you honor the Father. Very, very important. We know that eternal subordination is a false teaching. We looked at that in previous episodes, the heresies episode, um, the there's a whole episode on eternal subordination, I think, early on, a couple months ago. So go check it out. Uh, we looked at monarchical Trinitarianism. We looked at all these different things, why they're not correct. It doesn't make sense if he's not subordinate now 
to suddenly become subordinate for eternity when he returns. That makes zero sense. There's no change in ontology within God. God does not change. So there would not be a change in ontology in the future. So this is very important to understand. We looked at monarchical Trinitarianism, why it's wrong for three reasons. The first one being the filioque controversy, being does the, does the spirit proceed just from the father or both from the father and the son? The answer is the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. Both have a say in sending the spirit. Very important. Begotten, the nature of begotten and understanding how that's been misinterpreted because of the subordinationist tradition within the church to try to fit Jesus in some sort of a box where, you know, he's not equal with God. He's not in the same place. He's, he's coming out of God. He's begotten or eternally generated or spirated or whatever other kind of teaching you want to call it. I mean, it's basically just some way that it's, Jesus is sequentially coming out of the Father somehow. And that's a misunderstanding of the term begotten. Begotten means appointment. Jesus, as the incarnation of God, Jesus of Nazareth, was begotten, meaning appointed to be the chosen vessel for God to enter reality and eventually rule, which we'll see here in just a second through triune monarchy. But begotten is misinterpreted by Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, and a lot of people too. Even Protestants misinterpret it that way. And of course, the final reason why monarchical Trinitarianism is wrong is aseity. They, they believe that the Father alone has self-existence. He's the source. We looked at several problems with this conclusion, and it's wrong. So we know subordinationism is wrong. We know monarchical Trinitarianism is wrong. And we know monarchy of the Father is wrong as well, which a lot of Catholics and Protestants cling to as well, because this is just not consistent with everything that we've covered. Yahweh is king. It doesn't make a distinction that the Father alone is king. The verses that seem to imply distinction have to be weighed and compared to the verses that show, for example, Revelation 21, Jesus being on the throne, he's the Lord God, he's the sovereign, he's the Alpha Omega, he's the one who's creating the earth again. So how do you make, how do you make sense of that if you believe the Father alone is king? Doesn't make sense. So all of these views are incorrect. Meaning that any subordinationist understanding of this verse is wrong. It's wrong. Even though it seems on face value without context to suggest that the son is going to be subordinate to the father when he returns. That's what it seems. Again, without context. I will admit that. But again, there are many things you can take out of context. So you have to read context. You have to understand other things leading up to the particular verse you're reading. We're going to look at that. So if this is not talking about subordination or some sort of exclusive sense of monarchy of the Father, the question is, what is it talking about? The answer is that Yahweh as a triune being will rule through the body of Jesus Christ. This is what it's talking about. It is talking about the consummation of all things, where Jesus is the physical manifestation of God on earth. And when you look at Christ, you will look at the sovereign God of the universe. This is what it's about. It's the completion of the plan of salvation and the fulfillment of all things. Revelation 21 verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He, singular, will dwell with them and they will be his, singular, people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and the death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Now this is right before we looked at what? When Jesus said, he, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So Jesus is sitting on the throne, again, affirming that he is the creator, he's the Alpha and the Omega, and he's, he's the sovereign God. Now, right before that, you, you heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Is there another God that this is pointing to? Is this talking about the Father? No, not exclusively. It's talking about God as in Yahweh God, the triune God of the Bible. He, singular, will dwell with them. He, as in Yahweh, one being, will dwell with them. God himself will be with them as their God. Is there another God besides God himself? No. This is the, the profound reality being pointed to. God as a being singular. There is only one being, one God. But that God exists in three persons. Nevertheless, that one being, God himself, will be with them as their God. How? How is that going to happen? Well, it tells you. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is the one whom the triune God will be ruling through. Meaning, triune monarchy. God as a being, as a triune being, is the monarch. Not monarchy of the Father, not monarchical Trinitarianism, certainly not subordinationism, but triune monarchy. Such a beautiful concept, and I truly hope more people wake up to it. Because the Bible has mysteries to reveal to you that make you profoundly in awe at the glory of God. It really does. But notice now, we go back to Corinthians, notice an earlier verse. This is verse 24 in chapter 15. Then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father. You see now a distinction after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now again, another proof text as to why he's reigning right now. Jesus is reigning in heaven right now, because guess what? When he returns, everyone's going to be resurrected. We looked at this in the end times episode. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, meaning through the resurrection. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, he is accepted who put all things under subjection. Meaning, God is not going to be subject to Christ. But all things are subject to Christ. And when Christ, when all things are subjected to him, meaning when all the enemies are destroyed, and he returns and basically completes the mission, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Notice how in verse 24, God the Father is highlighted, distinguished for a very important reason, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. This is at the end, when Jesus returns. However, later, does the Father get highlighted? No. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be also subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God, to say not God the Father, it says God, may be all in all. 
If Paul meant to say God the Father, he would have said it. He said God because he's using the word God to encompass the entire Godhead. Meaning that when Jesus returns, remember the mystery of the incarnation, physical body, divine body. If Jesus is Yahweh and equal with God and you have to honor the Son as you honor the Father, the divine nature of Christ does not subjugate or subordinate to the Father because they're equal. However, the human nature of Christ will subordinate to God so that God may be all in all. Does that make sense? I really hope it does. It's a fascinating idea. It's a fascinating thing that the Bible reveals to you. Jesus is coming back, ending his temporary millennial kingdom, judging the wicked, resurrecting the dead, and then gives creation back to the Father so that God triune, parentheses, can be all in all, meaning the triune God will be in Jesus. We're going to have the Holy Spirit. Creation is going to be renewed with the Spirit. Everything, God will be all in all. The human nature of Christ is the only, I hate to say the word part, but the only part of Jesus that would be subordinate to God. Does that make sense? This is where people get it wrong, again, because they don't handle mysteries. Mystery of the Incarnation, Mystery of the Trinity. Both of these are important to understand and hold within your mind. Because the end of the millennial reign happens when Jesus returns, meaning the temporary assignment that Jesus has of ruling from heaven is over. And now God is going to rule from the earth. When it says when all things are subjected to him, it means the end of the millennial reign. The Son, when it says the Son in verse 28, doesn't refer to the divine Son. It refers to the incarnate Son. Why? Well, you know that because Jesus is returning as the incarnate Son. He's not returning as just the Spirit. He's returning as a physical incarnate God in glory, meaning when it, when Paul says in verse 28, when all things are subject to him, then the Son himself, this is very important. I hope I can highlight it for you, and I hope people will understand this. When it says the Son himself, it doesn't refer just to the Son as a spiritual being, which the Son was before the incarnation. The Son has a dual nature. He is both fully human and fully God. Well, we know the God part is not going to be subordinate to God because God is equal with God. So that means when he says the Son, he's speaking of the incarnate Son, meaning the only thing that can be subordinated to God or subjected to God is the physical, which is the body. Now, the Son is a, has a complex identity because he's the incarnate Son. He's fully God, fully fully man. So what this is revealing to you is not that an ontological change, but rather a completion, a completion of the incarnation, really, in some sense. Not that it, there's an incompletion with the incarnation, but a fulfillment, a consummation of the plan of God. A consummation where the Son is, is subjecting the body of the Son 
to God so that the triune being of God can rule through the Son, or I should say through Jesus of Nazareth, the glorified body of Jesus. It's a profound reality. But in John 3, verse 13, Jesus tells you, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Only the Son. Now, this is a whole other can of worms with an afterlife series that I plan on doing very shortly about the immortal soul and all these types of things that people have bought into over the last 2,000 years. The Hebrews never taught an immortal soul and nobody has been to heaven. We are not going to go to heaven. We're going to be resurrected and live on the earth that God created for us. But that's another can of worms. The point is that Jesus has a unique situation. He has a unique identity, first off. He's he's a unique being because he's human, fully human and fully God. The incarnation is unique to Jesus. The Father wasn't incarnate. The Spirit wasn't incarnate. It's Jesus that was the incarnate Son. The Son was incarnate in Jesus. Also, you have Jesus as the only being, the only human being that has ascended into heaven and is ruling in heaven. And he's going to come back and rule on earth so that the triune God can rule through Jesus forever. It's a very unique situation that you're dealing with. So you have to understand, again, if we go back to this diagram, the incarnation, again, this is, these are models. Don't, don't be dogmatic about them, but use them to marvel. Yahweh as a being entered reality through the Son in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. This is the mystery of the incarnation. Fully human, fully God. There's no separation between the Son and the Father. The Son is equally God as the Father is equally God. And so is the Spirit. But this is the mystery of the incarnation. The Son became incarnate, and that's through the person of Jesus. Now, at the consummation, you see these realities become very interesting in the sense that you have Jesus is the one that's on the throne, Revelation 21. Jesus is the one that's the sovereign. Jesus is the one that's Alpha and the Omega, the one that, remember, Yahweh says he's Alpha and Omega. But Jesus says that. He says that actually multiple times in Revelation. He's the sovereign Lord. He's the one creating the universe again. He's the one raising the dead, the one judging. Jesus is the one that Yahweh as a being will be God in all in all through. Yahweh will be all in all in Jesus. Yahweh will be in us through the Holy Spirit. Yahweh will be in creation through redeeming creation and maintaining things. If you know, like from the book of Job, when it talks about Like if God were to withdraw his spirit, all things would die. And that's kind of what happened with the Genesis curse. I mean, God is obviously sustaining all things, but God's influence on creation has been pulled away, his stabilizing influence. That's why there are things like tsunamis and diseases and, you know, just so many negative things with nature. And when we are resurrected in the new creation, nature itself will be free of the curse. It'll be a renewed creation where God's protective and sustaining influence will be at its maximum, will be a fulfilled, consummated point, meaning God will be all in all. So do you see how all of this lines up? It's very important, again, that we want to honor the Son as we honor the Father, because people want to, in trying to make a distinction between God the father is being the only king, and then you have the son that's kind of 
there as well through monarchical Trinitarianism or monarchy of the Father. People, what the intention is, is to try to honor the Father. We don't want to dishonor the Father, but the, but Jesus told you how to honor the Father. If you honor the Son as you honor the Father, then you honor the Father. You glorify the Father by glorifying the Son. If you don't honor the Son as you honor the Father, and you try to make a distinction where the Father, the unseen God, is better, stronger, more self-existent, the only king, those types of distinctions, you're not following what Jesus said. It is to the glory of the Father that we honor the Son. Very, very important. So we don't want to make a mistake, obviously, but ultimately Jesus told you what God's will is. It is to honor the Son so that you honor the Father that way. Now, I want to shift into looking at the new reality that we're facing when eternity comes. What does this look like and what is what does this have to do with 1 Corinthians 15 verse 28? And this change seems like that's happening within Jesus, within the Godhead. What is actually happening there? And I think if we look at the new reality and what's happening in eternity, we'll get a better picture of this triune monarchy deal. First off, we know that we're getting new bodies through the resurrection. We know the creation is being renewed. We know that God's presence, fullest maximum presence is going to be on earth through Jesus. Meaning God as a triune being will rule through the body of Christ. So we're going to look at all three points that really support this. And the first one is that subjection can mean judgment, but it can also mean salvation, very interestingly enough. So in Philippians 2 verse 9 through 11, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see again what, what the Bible is telling you? To honor the Father is really to honor the Son. That's what honors the Father. That is God's plan for the universe. It's for the Son, the incarnate Son, to be honored as God, equally God. Not different, not less, not the Father alone is king, not the Father alone has self-existence, but God as the sovereign God of the universe. You're not insulting God that way. You're not breaking any commandments. It is by design for God to have a physical body in the universe that you can worship and love and adore and look forward to as God, as the fullest expression of God there could possibly be. And that's the point. But it says that every knee will bow. And so what that means, that means two important things. The first one is that principalities in rebellion, the devil, obviously the demons, fallen angels, they're all going to be destroyed. Number two, death is going to be subjugated. Of course, that's kind of part of number one. But another thing that's going to happen is we as believers will be redeemed. So really three things total or two, however you want to look at it, because death could be kind of a principality in some sense. But nonetheless, subjection means two things. For the wicked, it means destruction. For the elect believers, it means redemption. In the sense that we will be subjected to the Holy Spirit, we're going to have new spiritual bodies. That ties into the next point I want to mention, but we're going to have new bodies. Our will will be subjected to God's will, which is perfectly good. We're not going to have any more evil thoughts, no more evil desires, no more sin, 
no more aging, no more death. We will be completely subjected to God, which is a beautiful thought. But in Romans 5 verse 10, it paints this subjection as a good thing for us who believe. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So we were enemies, but we were reconciled to God through the power of the Holy Spirit and being born again. God gives you a new heart. You cannot control when you're born again. God is the one doing salvation. He gives you a new heart and destroys your heart of stone through his grace and through his love. In that sense, you are being subjected to the will of God. But that is a good thing. You want to be subjected to the will of God so that you do good, that you think good, that you have new desires. Whereas principalities and rebellion will be subjected in the sense they're going to be destroyed. So subjection has multiple meanings that are very important. So when it says when all things are subjected to him, it's talking about judgment of the wicked and salvation of the righteous or the faithful. Meaning that Christ will integrate all of humanity to himself at the end. He's going to destroy the wicked so there's no more evil, clean house, and he's going to raise the dead, renew creation, and integrate everything to himself. Christ brings all of the physical reality that now exists. He's created the reality. He's raised the dead. He's given everybody, you know, new bodies through the Holy Spirit, spiritual bodies, which we'll look at in just a second a new creation, the destruction of evil. There's no more evil. He brings all of that perfectness to God, the Father. And then God, as a triune being, is all is all in all. God is all in all through Christ. God is all in all in us through the Holy Spirit and creation. And that is the picture that the Bible shows. That is the ultimate consummation. That is the finishing point. And then eternity just is, which is a beautiful thought. It's really something to look forward to. I, it really is. And I hope that you see it because it's fuel for all of the craziness that's going to come upon this world. Especially if you've read my end times or you've seen my end time series, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But now the second point is this. It's about the physical to the spiritual and how all creation will be integrated to God. In general, in 1 Corinthians 15, the context is that Paul argues about resurrection. He's talking about this spiritual and physical transformation that's going to happen. For example, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, for, all, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. In, four, in verse 45 through 46, it says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. So he's talking about basically the resurrection, the, the final state, what's going to happen, how God had to create precedence for this through physical, then the spiritual. And then in John 6, verse 63, a parallel verse to this is that Jesus says that the spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. So the spirit is the one who gives you life, both in the sense of being born again and in the sense of the resurrection state, the resurrection body, where we have spiritual bodies. That doesn't mean, again, ethereal, floating around in heaven kind of bodies. It just means perfect bodies. But those are spiritual bodies. Those are completely 
remade. They're made new. They're they're a new creation. And the like you're a new creation when you're born again, but that is the beginning. The the consummation of salvation is receiving the resurrection body. That is the whole point of the gospel that it's leading to is this consummated reality. And Paul is echoing that in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, in, in the chapter 15 in general. Later in verse 51 through 53, he says it again, the mystery and victory. And again, another mystery. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Again, another proof text why... If death is the last enemy to be destroyed, and that happens at the last trumpet, meaning the seventh trumpet when Jesus returns, then there is no millennial reign. The millennial reign is over at that point. But again, this is echoing other places where where uh, Paul writes, for example, First Thessalonians four, chapter four, verse sixteen through seventeen. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel with the sound of the trumpet of God, i.e. the seventh trumpet. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. This is not a rapture. This is a supernatural event happening at the end. The seventh trumpet is after the mark of the beast, just for review. To meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Not to be in heaven, in the air, but to be with the Lord. We're going to come back down to earth. Don't worry. We're going to be here. God created the earth to be inhabited. We're not going to be in heaven. And he's going to be on earth. Remember, the dwelling place of God is with man. It's not the dwelling place of man is with God in heaven. It's the dwelling place of God is with man. We are physical beings. We were designed to experience God in a physical way, which is a profound thing. But nonetheless, Paul is talking about this spiritual change that's happening. There's a change that's very significant happening when Jesus returns. And that is that he destroys death and the plan of salvation is consummated, meaning completed, and we're given new bodies. We are converted or transfigured or transformed, translated into spiritual bodies that are perfect, that don't age. They're glorified bodies. Who knows how they're going to be? They're probably going to be pretty awesome is my bet. But nonetheless, we have this change that is happening, this ontological change for us, really, into these perfect bodies. Very interesting. Now, the last point I want to mention, we're going to put all this together, is, again, on the incarnation and how that relates to our inheritance in Christ. In verse 27, Paul, when he says, for God has put all things as a subjection to his feet, he's citing Psalm 8. So let's go to Psalm 8, where it says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? This is verse 4. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now there's a sense that this applies to mankind, in the sense that we will be glorified with Christ. But of course, in, in the first way, or the primal way or the the first priority, it applies to Christ, the Son of Man, who made him lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him later with, with glory and honor after his passion. So this is also echoed in Hebrews 2, verse 9 through 10, 
where the author says, but we see him for who a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, very specific, making sure you know, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, some people again say that the verse that in, in question, verse 27 of 1 Corinthians, for God has put all things under subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put under subjection, it is plain that he is exempted, meaning the Father or God, who put all things in subjection under him. Now, again, you could you could see this as the way I see it, which is probably not the way most people see it. When it says God has put all things in subjection under his feet, you're dealing with two mysteries. God is Yahweh, who is triune, has put all things in subjection under his, the incarnation of the Son, feet. Because we're dealing with, again, two natures. God is triune. He has put all things in subjection under the feet of the chosen Messiah, who is the incarnation of God. But when it says all things are put under subjection, it is plain that he, he is accepted. He is in the triune God, singular, one being, is accepted. He's not going to be subjected to the incarnation. It's the other way around at the end. Does it make sense? God is the one who put things under subjection under the Messiah's feet. The Messiah is the chosen vessel for God to have dominion over the earth. That was the whole point, because God needs to be king. Otherwise, look what happens to the world. And in choosing that vessel, it's clear that he didn't put himself in subjection to that vessel. Doesn't make sense. That's what it's saying to you. But nonetheless, at the end, that vessel will subject things back to God so that God can be all in all as a triune being in the body of Jesus in creation, in the believers. So it's obvious that this is not talking about the Father, you know, in the sense that Paul is not saying, well, it's 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 not being cited to tell you that he who put things under subjection under his feet, it's plain that he is accepted, meaning he's not making an obvious statement that, yeah, it's, it's obvious that the Father's not going to be subject to the Son here. That's not what it's saying. It's, that, that's too obvious. It's, it's really not what it's talking about. It's dealing with mysteries, particularly the mystery of the incarnation. Jesus was human, and he was given subjection as the Son of Man of all of creation. But he also has a divine nature that is not subordinate to God, because he is God. God is not subordinate to himself. So this does not mean, basically, what's the, what's the take-home point? This does not mean that the Son is, as, a, as God, subjected and subordinate to the Father. It means that the incarnation, the Messiah, the incarnate Son, is, God is not subjected to the incarnate Son. God as a triune being is not subjected to the incarnate Son. That, that of course, makes sense. But it also means that the Son is incarnate, and that there is a change happening at the end where the Son gives the, where the incarnate Son gives all of these perfected creations and physical reality back to God so that God, the triune being, can rule through the body of Jesus. There is this final, again, I, it, words are difficult to use when you're dealing with so many mysteries. It's difficult to say there's, a, there's this final change that's happening because there's no change within God. God does not change. But there are 
functions, there is a, there is a sequential plan of salvation. We're not resurrected now, are we? We don't have resurrected bodies. The creation is groaning still. So obviously there is a sequential nature to all of this. There's a sequential nature. And at the end of that sequential nature, what the Bible tells you is that the incarnate son returns, doles out judgment, resurrects the faithful, perfects creation, and submits all of this physical creation, including his own physical body, which is the, the incarnation of Jesus, to God the Father. He gives all that back to God the Father so that not just God the Father, but God as a triune being can be all in all. It is about an alignment that is happening between God and creation. It's not a change within the Godhead. It's not subordination. It's nothing within ontological, in an ontological sense, like again, he's being subjected now for eternity. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about an alignment between God and his creation, which is going to be the, the perfection of all things. It's really profound. I hope you can see it. I hope I'm doing a good job explaining it. Again, if you have any questions, make sure you put them in the comments. But this is basically a significant, I hate to use the word change, but it's a fulfillment. It's a consummation. It's, it's a significant point in time that everything is leading up to. For both of us, for both us and creation and, creation and Jesus, because there, there's a consummation in that sense, too. When Jesus was walking the earth, it was just the Son. The Father was not... Again, it's like <laughs> you're dealing with mysteries because Jesus said, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And, you know, uh, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So you, you, can't, you can't be dogmatic about these things. But nonetheless, the Son was the one who was incarnate in Jesus. And at the end... The triune God, Yahweh, will be in Jesus. So you make of that whatever you will. It's not an ontological change. God doesn't change. It's not a subjection of subordination. It is a fulfillment of things. It's an alignment. I like to think of it like an alignment. But there's a change in us. There's a change of the role of Christ and his kingdom and the millennial kingdom. We're being transformed. The millennial kingdom is coming to an end. Don't, again, don't over-spiritualize these things. We're not going to be these ethereal bodies floating around in heaven. We're going to be on earth. We're just going to have immortal bodies. We're going to have glorified bodies. There's going to be a change in creation. He's making all things new. And there's a change again in Christ's role uh, within the millennial kingdom as king. He's transitioning from Psalm 2, where he's ruling amongst his enemies, because there's no more enemies left, to the eternal state. God is transitioning from a temporary situation to a forever situation, to an eternal situation. There is a transition. There's no change within God. There's no sub subordination. There's no subjection. There's no ontological change. But there is a transition between the millennial reign and the eternal state. And that also has significant spiritual changes, as we hopefully have outlined so far. Christ has a mediatorial kingdom where you have the church age, the millennium, where he's interceding. But that is done away with at the judgment. There's no more need for Christ to be the high priest. Do you see the point? Because when he returns, the millennial reign is over. There's no more need for a high priest. 
the enemies aren't there anymore. Judgment has been done. The office that he has held through the millennial age is over. It's fulfilled. Now, God is going to rule on earth in a perfect creation forever. That's the permanent office of Jesus. But triune God will rule through Jesus in eternity forever. So the office is changing in the sense that economy, right? You have economical differences, which are changing, but the ontology doesn't change. Christ's role as the mediator is done at the final judgment. There's no more mediation after that. All the enemies are going to be destroyed. But Christ's role as the incarnation of God is not done. In fact, it is in some sense consummated because God will be all in all. This is what all of creation is leading up to when you will be in the presence of God physically to see him in his fullest glory in the physical world. This is what it's all about. And that is the role of the incarnation. Again, you had sequential things. The, the first role was to basically propitiate for sins, to pay for sins, to die and suffer on the cross, the death that you and I deserve. Then he resurrected. He set the precedent for uh, believers to have a trans transformed body. Remember, Christ is the first fruits so that everybody could be like him. He basically is the model to which we're being conformed. Then he ascended into heaven to basically rule for this millennial age and intercede. Then he's returning to judge, also role of the incarnation, to be able to judge creation, physically resurrect people. And then finally at the end, the final real purpose, as I say, or they're all real, but the ultimate purpose of the incarnation is so that God could be with his people, his physical creations, on earth forever in a perfect reality. And that's when everything in reality will be subjected to Yahweh. Yahweh will be in the body of Christ and will be in creation. Everything will be renewed. I'm not saying pantheism, so don't take my words out of context. I'm saying everything will be renewed. The spirit will be in us, in, in our glorified bodies. We'll have perfect bodies. Everything will be realigned the way it's supposed to be. In fact, in a more full sense than in Genesis, obviously, because Adam and Eve didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have glorified bodies. They had very good bodies. They had the first iteration before all the curse stuff kicked in. But nonetheless, they had they didn't have glorified bodies. This is the consummation. Everything is leading up to this point. So there are important distinctions that we have to make. Yahweh as a triune God, and again, the physical person of Jesus. You're dealing with two mysteries. Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Yahweh is one being existing in three persons. Just to carry these two things in your mind is... It's difficult. It is difficult. But if you can't handle cognitive dissonance, then you will run into error in trying to put these in boxes and divide God where you shouldn't. But once all things have been subjected, then Christ, meaning the physical body of Jesus, will be subjected to the triune God. Remember that he has two natures. The human one, the human nature, is what can be subjected to God because it's physical. That's what this means. It's that all of physical reality will be subjected to Yahweh. 
so that God can be all in all. There will not be any evil. There will not be any darkness. There will not be any death. God's presence will fill all things, which is a profound, profound reality. And this is what the Bible is leading to. And it is fulfilled in the person of Jesus, who is God and sovereign and the personification, the incarnation of Yahweh, the triune being. And again, the incarnation was just the Son. (laughs) There's no division between the Son and the Father, but the incarnation was the Son. At the end of time, when God is on earth and wiping away our tears and the one on the throne and creating things again, the sovereign Lord, the Alpha and the Omega, God is triune and he will be in the body of Jesus of Nazareth, of Christ, in the glorified body, so that you see the fullest manifestation of God on earth. Profound. And when you when you look at Jesus, you will see God as the triune Yahweh in one person. No more angel of Yahweh and separate Yahweh. No more Father, Son, Holy Spirit in different, you know, distinct, again, you got to use your words carefully, in distinct realities. You're going to see God. You're going to see Yahweh in person through Jesus. That is a profound thought. If that doesn't just get you excited for eternity, I mean, I don't know what will, but ultimately this is what the Bible tells us. All the all the verses in Revelation, when it says God himself will be with them, God will wipe away their tears, it's referring to the Godhead. It's not referring to just God the Father. It's not referring to just God the Son. It's referring to God, the triune being of the Bible, of the world, of the universe. It's referring to Yahweh. Yahweh will be their God. And of course, if we go back to this diagram, again, these are just working models to help you understand these things that are ultimately mysteries. Don't get too dogmatic about it, but you have Jesus of Nazareth was the incarnate son. Yahweh entered reality through the son, did his earthly ministry. The son ascended is now ruling. We are transitioning from this to this, which was when Jesus returns, destroys all evil, judges the earth, resurrects the faithful, recreates creation, and assumes the eternal throne where God will be with us. He'll be our God. He'll wipe away our tears. God himself will be their God. The dwelling place of God will be with man. It doesn't say God the Father. It says God, as in triune God. Yahweh will be in the person of Jesus. The Holy Spirit of Yahweh will be within us as believers. We're going to have renewed bodies. Creation will be renewed. God's presence through the Spirit will be in all things, sustaining them to their maximum. It's going to be amazing. It really is. But this is the the profound mystery and revelation of the Bible, is that we're going from this to this at the end, when we're going to see God face to face. We will look upon his face, is what Revelation tells you. Well, his is singular. It's not talking about just the Son. It's talking about God as in the triune God that revealed himself sequentially through the Bible. Remember to Abraham, he said, I revealed myself as God Almighty. They didn't know about Yahweh. Of course, looking back, you see that Abraham was talking to a person who who was basically Yahweh, who was the personified Yahweh he was talking to, and yet there was also an impersonal or uh, incorporeal Yahweh. But in Abraham's time, it was God Almighty. Then Exodus with Moses, it was Yahweh, the self-existent one. 
Then with Jesus, you have Jesus of Nazareth. Now we put a name to a face. We can see God. And when Jesus returns, you will have a glorified state to be in the fullest, maximum, infinite presence of God on earth through Jesus. That when you look at Jesus, you will see the triune God, Yahweh, completely personified in his glory. Man, what a thought. It is such a thought. It is such a thought. Now, I want to leave you with another final point, which we talked about before, which also ties into this, which is that God is a free being, that economy is within God based on cooperation and love and free choice rather than subordination, which unfortunately a lot of people believe. This is another important part of this triune monarchy idea, which is that, again, when, when we look at, for example, the Trinity and salvation, where the Father has certain things that he's done, like he's sovereignly predestined people, he draws people to Christ, Christ atones for them, the Spirit seals them, all those things that we looked at. There's a lot of things that the triune God does through the different persons in the scriptures. Now, again, don't be dogmatic about it, because you can't separate God. Like, okay, the Spirit's just doing this, and here's the Son doing that. It's Again, it's very loose economy when we're dealing with these things. But nonetheless, the Bible does give you distinct economies in terms of salvation, different roles and different things that you see the different persons doing. But how those are operating, those roles are operating, people tend to believe that these are subordinationist-based, meaning the Father commanded the Son to go and get it, you know, go on the cross, and the Son is just obeying the Father. That's taken from a misunderstanding of the Son's obedience in his earthly life, earthly ministry, where he is both human and God. So you can't read subordinationism into the eternity of God, into the eternal qualities of the Son, by looking at his human ministry, where he had to be subordinate because that was the plan. This is an error, just like reading the Old Testament, or I should say reading the New Testament from the lens of the Old Testament. A lot of errors people do by doing that. But nonetheless, if you see these things from a position of God, first off, is the only being in the universe that has libertarian free will. He's able to freely choose. We cannot choose free of influence. God can do that. This is why, by the way, free will salvation, the whole personal growth movement, all these things have something in common. It's the lie from the Garden of Eden. But now, if God is the one that can choose free of influence, then when we look at all of these economies, we see that the Father chooses free of influence, the Son does, and so does the Spirit. They all choose freely. When it says in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4, our God is one, it really, the word there is echad, it's of one mind meaning they always choose in agreement with one another because of love. The love that proceeds from each person to one another, from the Spirit to the Son and the Father, from the Father to the Son and the Spirit, all those connections of love within God himself is pure love. It's the highest form of love, the highest form of joy, and they are always of one mind in what they choose. Yes, the Father predestined reality, and predestined the cross so that the Son could be glorified to the glory of the Father. But the Son freely chose 
to put his glory aside and enter reality and atone for those people. He wasn't obeying the Father because the Father is the monarch only. This, was, this is a subordinationist understanding. The true accurate, I believe, understanding of the Godhead is that it's based on love and cooperation. The Father predestined this plan for the Son, freely chose it, freely chose unconditionally people to give to the Son to worship Him for eternity, to the glory of the Father. The Son freely and lovingly chose to accept this plan because out of love, out of His love for the Father and entered reality and endured all the things that He endured. The Spirit freely chose out of His love for the Father and the Son to support these activities and to do all the things that the Spirit does through being born again, through the works, through the various um, works, even in creation. I mean, we, we have the Spirit in the very beginning we talked about in the Old Testament creating reality with the Son, with the Father. So the triune God has always been involved, and the triune God, because God is one being who chooses free of influence, that means all persons are able to choose free of influence, and, and they are of one mind all the time. There's never a time when one person's choices will be different from the others. This is the unity of God. That doesn't mean inseparable operations. We talked about this in a previous episode, which is a false teaching. It just means there's unity within God, which, by the way, is why free will salvation is such a problem. That's a whole can of worms. But if Jesus came to die for everybody, that's not what the Bible says. Very controversial topic. But if he did that, then he would be choosing something different than what the Father chose, because the Father has a very specific people that he gave to Christ and that he chose from before the foundation of the world. So Jesus aligns with the Father and came and died for those people. We don't know who those people are, but nonetheless, election is specific. Now, going back to this idea of economy, if the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father, or becomes eternally subordinate at some point, then he's just following orders. He's not doing it out of love. Do you see the problem? It's not a free choice. It can't be a free choice. And so if the Son is equal to the Father as God, and God as a being is able to choose free of influence, he's the only being that can do that because he's outside of time and space, then the Son had to be able to choose freely to enter reality. It's a free choice out of love and cooperation, not out of obedience or in the sense of like subjugation or subordination. Now, for this choice that the Son made to be incarnate, he was exalted. He was exalted to power. But the Son, again, we're dealing with the incarnate Son, the Christ. He was exalted to power and authority. That's Daniel 7. Christ is also high priest and king during this temporary millennial kingdom. We know that from Psalm 2 and other places. He's going to return. He's going to destroy all enemies. The last enemy to be destroyed is death through the resurrection, i.e. the millennial reign is over at that point. And God's plan is complete. There's no more need for mediators, no more enemies, no more people need to be saved anymore. Meaning the human nature of Christ, the physical nature that he has, will be subjected to God, triune, so that God will be all in all. And this is a free choice of God. It's not based on subjection or subordination or whatever other subordination is understanding or monarchy of the Father. Both of creation and us 
will be filled with the Spirit. Everything will be sustained by God's presence and will be at its maximal, you know, unadulterated state. No sin, no evil, no death. In eternity, the Spirit will be in everybody because we're all going to be fully sanctified. We're going to have resurrected, glorified bodies. And Yahweh as a triune being will be in Christ. He'll be in Christ. When you look at Christ, that's Yahweh, fully Yahweh. Of course, it's not, again, you got to watch your words because Jesus was fully God as well. But this is a, a consummation of that. So again, don't, don't be too dogmatic because it's easy to, to get lost with language. Language is imperfect. There's no way I can describe this to you that's going to be perfect. But I hope that you understand what I'm saying. Because all of this is that the economy of God, meaning things that are presented to you as roles and um, you know offices, like the office of the millennial kingdom, these are things that are based on free will choice and love and cooperation. They're not based on subjugation or being subordinate or whatever else, or monarchy of the fathers. It's based on cooperation. So Paul is describing a transition some kind of change, but again, there's no change within God, but there is a change within us of the physical to the spiritual. Also creation as well. Creation will be renewed. That is a change. And within God, God doesn't change, but he does have a physical nature now through the incarnation, meaning that that will be a, a fulfillment of God's plan to be within his creation and to be with his creation. It'll be complete. That's what's going to happen. Paul is not talking about an ontological change, a subordination, eternal subordination, monarchy of the Father, monarchical trinitarian. He's not talking about any of that stuff. He's spending 1 Corinthians 15 talking about the resurrection and the, the transition from these dying bodies to something spiritual that is perfect, the perfection of reality. Part of the perfection of reality is that we will see Yahweh as a triune God through a physical body through physical manifestation, a fullness of that, which is Jesus. And that's what this is being. It's, it's a mystery. Behold, I tell you a mystery. It is a mystery indeed. There are two mysteries that we're dealing with, again, that are very nebulous, which is the Trinity and the Incarnation. At the end, God is one being. He is the monarch. He's the king of the earth, both the Old Testament and New Testament. It's always been Yahweh. And the New Testament tells you that Jesus is Yahweh. But Jesus has two natures, so how do you make that? Well, you make of it that the physical nature of Christ is subjected to God so that God triune can be all in all. God has always been king, and in eternity, it's going to be 100% manifest, like completely, fully consummated. That's what this is going to. Now, I said I would tell you something interesting with these whole symbols on this little sheet that I have for the Trinity series with the crown, with the cross, and with the um, with the dove. So I'll leave you with this. This is the final thing I'll leave you with. Jesus is referred to as three things, as the king, as the prophet, and as the priest. Those are kind of the three offices that Jesus has. Of course, the king relates to sovereignty. The prophet relates to the word of God, being wisdom of God. And the priest is the propitiation and the intercession. Now, all three types were in the Old Testament to foreshadow the nature of Christ. 
the nature of his work, the nature of who he is. You had the kings, you had the prophets, um, you had the priest, the priestly roles, the Levitical priests. All of those three types foreshadowed the nature of Jesus. Now, here's the interesting part with all this triune monarchy stuff. The king is often associated with the father, the prophet is associated with the spirit, and the priest or the intercession role, <coughs> excuse me, is associated with the son. And there's truth to that, obviously. But nonetheless, what the Bible reveals to you, when Jesus returns, even though there's Old Testament fragments and New Testament reveals kind of the incarnation and all these things are seem separate in the New and the Old Testament, at the end of the New Testament, what the Bible reveals to you is all of this will be integrated somehow. Again, it's not a change. It's not an ontological change. It's not God doesn't change. But there is an alignment that is happening of prophet, king, and priest all in one person. Holy Spirit, Father, and Son, when you look at Jesus, you will see the triune God. You will see the king. You will see the prophet. You'll see the wisdom of God. And you'll see the one who is the propitiation for your sins, the humble servant. Of course, he's going to be in full glory, but you will see the propitiation of the priest. You'll see all of those offices in one person, in one being. I'm not talking about modalism. I'm talking about the triune God, Yahweh, who is king and priest and prophet in the person of Jesus. One being existing tripersonally, but being manifest in a physical person. How that works is a mystery. It really is. Christ is going to be the consummation of all of this. Now, I hope you've learned something. I hope you've learned something from all of this. I hope it's been interesting for you. It's certainly been interesting for me to marvel at the future that awaits us. Try not to, again, try not to be dogmatic about these things because they are mysteries. They're mysteries. You're not going to get it, but you are going to get enough to where you can marvel and avoid error, which is, is very important because I don't want you to stray into monarchical Trinitarianism, monarchy of the father alone, or subordinationism, or any of the incorrect views that we have studied in the last few weeks. In the end, when Christ returns, it will be like nothing we can imagine. And I hope that today has helped you, because it's helped me to look forward to that very, very beautiful end to the story. <laughs>